and the madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Where has God gone? he cried. Let me tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We all are his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink the ocean dry? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the horizon? Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Coyle, Colgate University professor of English and a longtime scholar of modernist poetry. And I'm Alan Swenson, a Colgate professor in the German department with a, an interest in Nietzsche and Nietzsche's relationship to literature. That's, that's part of the story. Actually, Alan Swenson is my favorite translator of Nietzsche into English for reasons that I hope will make clear. This is the, the first of our six podcasts on essentially the impact of Nietzsche's aphorisms on modernist poetry and on modern German literature as well. I think it's a very timely topic, in particular because Nietzsche is concerned with us as knowers, and we live in a time where everybody has their own facts, seemingly. One of the things <laughs> that Michael hinted at is that Nietzsche is very interested in language per se and the degree to which it can be used to convey knowledge. English uh, lacks something that German and, and many other languages have, a differentiation between two or more verbs that mean to know. In English, we can know a fact and we can know a person. In German, you have to use different words for those. And Nietzsche tends to use the word for knowing a person, at least he does in the genealogy of morality, that things that we really care about are of such a complexity that you can't know them like facts, that you come to know them, you're acquainted with them. But the trick there is, and here's where aphorisms come in, language often, uh, as he puts it, seduces us to mistakes in thought. That the fact that our language requires us to have a subject for every verb tends to lead us to think that every action, every doing has an agent that does it, whereas in fact many things don't. And you get into trouble when you assume that somebody intentionally did that to you, when in fact maybe you're hurting just because you're hurting. No one did it. <laughs> and the reason aphorisms work well here, aphorism comes from the same root as the word horizon, the same Greek root, and gets at the idea that all of us live within uh, a horizon that's unique to us, that is not objective, that it's the place where what I can see ends and everything else begins. So things we know in the sense of knowing a person are limited. And actually, Michael and I, uh, when we teach, have often used the, the story of the five blind men being introduced to the elephant to kind of get this point across that each of them touches the elephant, and one of them says, oh, elephants are like pillars in the temple. Uh, he touched the leg. One of them says, it's like a wall. Another one says, no, it's like a big fan. And yet another, uh, kind of like a rope. The point being, each of them is somewhat right. And if you add it all up, 
you get closer and closer to some kind of uh, objective take on what an elephant is. Mm. And Nietzsche sees aphorisms working this way, that each one is a particular take with a particular perspective and is not meant to stand alone, is meant to help you move closer to a whole un as whole an understanding of the thing as we can get. There's another dimension to Nietzsche's formal innovation, and that, that to me almost feels like too weak a description of it. The Nietzschean aphorism and the ways that it gets taken up by modernist poets is, is part of a, an ancient tradition of, I, I know, Alan, that you don't always love this phrase, but what we might call wisdom literature. And this, this body of literature takes different forms at different points in history in different places. Every, every culture that's ever produced a literature at all has some species of it. In China, you could, you could look at the sayings of Confucius. There are such things in India. There are such things everywhere. But the modern aphorism differs from, say, maxims or epigrams or apothems or proverbs, in that all these other ancient forms were intended to deliver a succinct and immediately recognizable in its truthfulness statement, unproblematic, so that you hear it or you read it and you nod your head and you say, true that. But the aphorism, as it comes out of Nietzsche, is different. It troubles its own foundations. And in sequence, as Nietzsche often wrote them, one aphorism might seem to contradict the one that, that came before it. This becomes hugely important for poets writing in English in the 20th century and after. I think I would agree with that, um, where I think it's important to put it in a context like the story of the elephant is that Nietzsche is working towards some kind of knowledge here, that he begins, for example, his touchstone work, as he calls it, the genealogy of morality, with the line, uh, we are unknown to ourselves, we knowers. Mm -hmm. And there's a good reason for that, that we never seek after ourselves. We're always busy out in the world like bees bringing knowledge back from there, and we do not know ourselves. And that's where the horizon comes from, is that sense of ourself in knowing. So each one of these, you're right, they sometimes seem to contradict, but taken as a whole, I think Nietzsche sees them as in fact completing knowledge rather than competing and canceling out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, 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 would, I would just want to add that, that one of the distinctive features of this form that we're talking about in our series is that it requires interpretation. In other words, you don't just take it in and note it and live by it. It requires a really active kind of reading. Here's a place where maybe, maybe it's useful to, to turn to Nietzsche's uh, work himself since at the beginning of Genealogy of Morality, he actually advises us as readers on this very thing that uh, <laughs> he writes. In other cases, the aphoristic form creates a difficulty it lies in the fact that we don't attach enough weight to this form today. An aphorism honestly coined and cast has not been deciphered simply because it has been read through. Yeah. Rather, its interpretation must now begin. And for this, an art of interpretation is needed. Admittedly, to practice reading as an art, one thing above all is necessary, something which these days has been unlearned better than anything else, 
something for which one must also be a cow, and in any case, not a modern human, ruminating. Uh, that is, being willing to read slowly, taking time, uh, mm. thinking it through again and again, comparing it to what we've read before. And the passage that you're reading, Alan, is actually a good example of what he's talking about. Why in heaven's name is he talking about ruminating? Well, that turns out to be a really important trope in, in Nietzsche, doesn't it? This idea that we have, we have trouble digesting. We have, we have trouble, you know, being comfortable with what the modern world tells us we are. Yeah, I think that here, here too, one of the problems, that's again a very contemporary issue is that Nietzsche's very keenly aware that we tend to want to hear what pleases us. And the aphorism is precisely going to trip us up on that. It's going to force us to look at things we might otherwise not want to look at or to rethink the way we look at something. Have you been thinking about a an example from uh, one of Nietzsche's books that you'd like to begin with? Because if, if you're not exactly clear where you want to start, I have a suggestion. Sure. How about the madman aphorism? Okay. Yeah. Well, this is probably one of the most famous moments in all of Nietzsche's work. And it's, it's routinely and grossly misunderstood. Even people who have never read Nietzsche think that they they know that he said God is dead. It's not that simple. Let's just think as Alan reads this for us. This is your original translation. I'm not sure that you're even entirely done with it, but the draft I saw a few months ago impressed me a lot. Just notice the way that this episode unfolds. Notice who's speaking. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning light, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I am looking for God, I am looking for God. Since many of those who did not believe in God were standing there together at the time, he provoked a great laughter. Has he gotten lost, said one? <laughs> did he lose his way like a child, said another? Or is he in hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he shipped out, emigrated? Thus they cried and laughed all at the same time. The madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Where has God gone? He cried, let me tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We all are his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink the ocean dry? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Where is it now headed? Where are we now headed? Away from all suns? Are we not constantly falling and backwards, sideways, forwards, toward all sides? Is there still an up and a down? Are we not airing about as if through an endless nothingness? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not grown colder? Is the night constantly coming? And more night? Don't we have to light lanterns in the morning? Do we still hear nothing of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we still smell nothing of the divine decay? Even God's decay. God is dead. God will remain dead, and we have killed him. How do we console ourselves, we murderers of all murderers? The most sacred and most powerful thing the world has possessed until now, it has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood from us? 
With what water could we cleanse ourselves? What ceremonial atonements, what sacred games will we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we not become gods ourselves in order to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed. And whoever is born after belongs for the sake of this deed in a higher history than all previous history has been. Here the madman grew silent, looked at his listeners again. They too were silent and looked at him disconcertedly. Finally, he threw his lantern to the ground so that it burst into pieces and went out. I come too soon, he said. It is not yet time. This enormous event is still underway and wandering. It has not yet made its way to the ears of men. Thunder and lightning need time. The light of the stars needs time. Deeds need time, even after they are done, before they can be seen and heard. This deed is still further from them than the farthest stars, and yet they have done it themselves. They still tell of the madman forcing his way into various churches that same day and striking up his Requiem Aeternum Deo in them. When led out and asked to justify himself, all he ever said was, What are these churches now if they are not God's crypts and tombstones? You know, as many times as I've read that, it still strikes me as extraordinary. So what I'd, I'd like to observe is first, he has a speaker, right? So Nietzsche's aphorism, this, Alan, we're going we're gonna to properly call this entire episode an aphorism, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a, a speaker within it, the madman. And it's the madman who says, God is dead. And it might well be that that's precisely what Nietzsche believes. But the point is, he put these words in the mouth of another speaker, and he identifies that speaker as a madman. And obviously, Nietzsche's riffing on the, you know, the ancient legends about Diogenes, the cynic, who'd wander around the Agora with wearing nothing but a barrel and carrying a torch in broad daylight. But it's not him, right? Because Diogenes was a cynic. He didn't believe in anything. Whereas the single most important struggle in, in Nietzsche, I think, is the, the struggle for belief. He understands that there's no contesting the science that's killed God, right? That there's that wonderful moment in one of Nietzsche's earliest works, The Advantage and Disadvantage of History for Life. What's the, what's the German title for that again? Vom Nutzen und Nachteil der Historie für das Leben. Yeah. And... This is something that you heightened my awareness of long ago. It's really helpful to think of Nietzsche's work in relation to Darwin. So in this book, he's talking about Darwin, and he says of Darwin, his doctrine is true, but deadly. In other words, we can't live with it. We can't live. We can't survive thinking that our lives are meaningless, have no significance. There's no purpose in our being here. I think this ties in well, too. I know that you like working with your students with another of his early works from Untimely Meditations, which is the book that that uses and abuses of history comes from. And the so-called madman here uh, appears to everyone to be mad precisely because his meditations are untimely. He comes too early. Yeah. He's telling them something that they can't see or hear yet. So he isn't, in his own way, linking himself into what's true about Darwin that he worries about, namely that 
so much of what happens to us as human beings happens in such long time spans that we can't perceive it. Mm. Um, and that it's beyond our horizons. That uh, It's worth noting here that uh, one of the things he thinks we've done with our science is we've wiped away the horizon. Nature thinks <laughs> horizons are absolutely essential for us to thrive as human beings, that you cannot be held accountable for all existence. You have to be able to have a sphere that is defined enough that you can act without second-guessing yourself. It's such a powerful image, wiping away the horizon. And I also like the way that your, your translation, I hadn't noticed this in the other translations I've, I've looked at, but what sacred rights will we invent? In, in other words, all right, if we've, if we've killed God, where are we going to find the sacred? What are we going to have to create ourselves? Maybe before we even get to that that point, I think it's in, in any case important to notice. I think you rightly said earlier this is one of his most famous aphorisms, or not even the whole aphorism, just the idea God is dead. But I think people tend to think Nietzsche is saying that gleefully, or right, uh, right, is is agitating for that. When quite the contrary is true, if you read the whole aphorism, which is always yeah. the important thing to take every piece of it in context, A, he thinks this is just a fact that he has to acknowledge that we, we all have killed God, and that this was the greatest thing we have had to this point in our existence. So the reason it matters that we acknowledge this is he's gone and left a gap that we have to fill now, mm -hmm. somehow. A void. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 as you pointed out, I think he he doesn't say it directly, but he hints at it that he bled to death under our knives, and we've unchained the sun. He's referring to modern scientific discovery that modern science has killed God. Yeah. So again, thinking about this formally, and and we could go on this way, right? But the way that this is written essentially requires us to interpret it. There are lots of, I mean, virtually every line in this is, is something that, that we could pause over and say, right, and we see this elsewhere in Nietzsche or, or whatever. But the fact is, it's not simple. And even the device of using a speaker who's identified as a madman complicates things. Mm -hmm. So why don't you take us to a, another example of, of, of how this kind of writing shows up in Nietzsche? I was wondering, actually, though, if we don't want here to, since we, we are asserting this has some kind of relevance <laughs> beyond Nietzsche, to bounce back and forth a little bit here. Because I think actually taking a look at the snowman, for example, might illustrate what Nietzsche is actually doing here with uh, horizons and perspectives and the notion that we can't begin to build some kind of objective picture of a thing until we've recognized that our insights are incomplete. Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right. Well, you know, I think the thing to do is simply to, to read the poem because it's not very long. And uh, we can talk about the ways in, in which the presentation of this, this poem shows the impress of, of Nietzsche's work. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is a, a poem that Stevens published in 1921, and it's among his earliest published poems. The Snowman 
And by the way, it, it matters to note that snow and man are, are separate words, not just because they scan differently, but, but well, we'll see. The snowman. One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun, and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind, in the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place. For the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. A marvelous poem. It's a wonderful poem. And it, you know, every time I, I read it, I find myself just wanting to fall silent for a moment and and feel it. I'm glad you mentioned, too, that, that the title is three words and not two, The Snow yeah. Man. And it, this is exactly the kind of use of language that Nietzsche cares about, is a slight variation from what we expect as a standard, but it often is the one thing that's going to point you in the right direction to think differently about this, to, to not take it as a cliche, that this poem, in other words, is not about the thing you and I made when we were kids, when it snowed, <laughs> but rather about something about a human being with relationship to winter, to cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, um, the, the sort of central condition of all of Stephen's poetry is the, the unknowability of the physical universe, except in human terms, right? So this is a poem that says, you'd have to have a mind of winter not to go out in the kind of weather that I see outside my window right now on this, this February day. You'd have to have a mind of winter, winter not to go out in that and think, oh my gosh, it's miserable. The point simply is that the landscape isn't miserable, it's you. <laughs> that, I think, is exactly the kind of horizon that Nietzsche is interested in here. And, and in a way, too, I think Stevens holds out the hope, and I think Nietzsche always does, too, that, yes, in the end, I, I think you put it nicely, and I think Nietzsche would agree that the world, other than the one we can perceive, is actually irrelevant to us. Uh, yeah. we, can't, we can't get to it. But there is a slight hint here that, in the end, there are times maybe when you can be nothing yourself so that that self doesn't color the frost and the juniper shagged with ice out there and you actually perceive them at least not in themselves but the beauty they have separate from your misery yeah but of course even that recognition of beauty in the poem does such a great job in observing it doesn't it i mean i read these lines and i think i want to go do winter sports <laughs> That, that category of beauty is a completely human category, too. Mm. So it's the incredible double negative at the end of the poem that really makes this, this poem uh, work for me. So that if you could become nothing yourself, then 
you'd behold nothing that's not there. In other words, you'd see things as they are, although it matters hugely, doesn't it? That Stevens doesn't put it that way. But also, and this is the unexpected part, the nothing that is. Now, the way that I read this poem, the nothing that is, is our entire human world of of value, purpose, and meaning. There's no basis for it in nature. Nature, you know, nature doesn't even exist, right? That's that's a, a human construct. There's a body of physical laws out there. You know, there are conditions. But in, until a human eye looks at those junipers, shagbathis, and thinks, that's really beautiful, it wasn't. I would agree with you on that. I, th- I think that that's how I read that last line, too. So how do you see this as a, a poem with Nietzsche's impress on it? Well, you've already hit, I think, the principal point there. I, I, I see it in the way Stevens uses language, that his use of punctuation, of grammar, of dividing the word snowman, not using it as one word but two, um, anything about language that helps fight that seduction of language that Nietzsche's talking about. And, <laughs> and I think good poets always, this is one of their strong commitments, is to breaking cliches, to getting us to look at language fresh. And in that sense, I know you and I often argue over whether Nietzsche's a poet primarily or a philosopher, <laughs> but he very much is a poet in that sense, that, that he cannot get his philosophical investigations across if he doesn't stop us from slipping into cliche and into the seductions of language. But also, this is very much about perspective. And that's key to Nietzsche, that Nietzsche thinks that, at least in terms of all the things that matter in life, there is only perspectival seeing, that a human being can only see within their own horizon, from their own perspective, eyes see in a certain direction. Yeah, um, and that doesn't distress him. That that I think he thinks that's exactly what we must embrace. What we can see. What makes it better, though, is if we are open to comparing other people's perspectives and seeing where the overlap is, and that's where we begin to get maybe some kind of we're moving towards objective knowledge. I don't think Nietzsche thinks we ever get there. <laughs> yeah, any more than than Stevens thinks that that we can ever really know the, the physical universe as it is. But the other thing, I, I, I love what you were just saying, Alan. None of this distresses Stevens. Or Stevens, Nietzsche. Or Nietzsche, right? Stevens is essentially, and I, I don't mean this in the trivial sense, he's a comic poet. And I don't know that, that Nietzsche had any truer son than, than Stevens in this regard. You know, the experience of joy over the abyss, Stevens wasn't bothered by the fact that there was no benevolent deity up above who was, you know, sanctioning all of our, our most heartfelt wishes and, you know, there to protect us. For Stevens, our condition means that we get to reinvent the world every day. And that's the work of poetry. What you were just saying about, you know, the, the sharing of a poem like this is, is one of the ways that maybe we get outside of our heads, even though, as every reader of poetry knows, you know, when we read a poem, it's an intensely personal engagement. And yet, paradoxically, it's something that takes us out of our own heads. Yeah, I think, I think that the fact that 
Stevens, and I think Nietzsche as well, are not disturbed by this, comes through beautifully in that last line that you read so well here too. Nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. One, I suppose some people might see that as a rather gloomy end, but I think the way the poem is written, it's not meant that way, and neither Nietzsche nor Stevens would have found the nothing that is anything but a, a possibility, an openness. <laughs> yeah, you know, back to the title of the poem, Stevens was a, a rotund fellow, never bothered him. But, you know, in, one comic side note to this is that, you know, Stevens is, is the kind of snowman, right? A, a snowman's essentially goofy thing, you know, the, the things that children make out of snow. It's not a man, but it's also no longer natural, right? It's something that, that we've done. Every metaphor in this this poem works towards this this vision that we've been teasing out and that and in that sense too stevens is a good nietzschean right nietzsche's metaphors are always carefully considered he knows exactly what he's doing you've i've heard you remark to students many times about you know what how proud nietzsche was of his stylistic accomplishments he was very self-aware of his work as a writer uh, not just as a writer, also as a classical philologist. I don't probably many people think of him purely as a philosopher and don't realize he actually was not trained as a philosopher. He was trained as a professor of Latin and Greek. And he commented also um, in letters and elsewhere that the way he wanted to be read was like a good old philologist, a good old classics professor reads Horace. <laughs> um, reading carefully, looking up every word, making sure you understand the grammatical construction. And it's not a very popular thing in present day culture that we like to think of language as creating simple sentences that can be quickly understood. And maybe, maybe here's where, again, that notion of two kinds of knowing comes into play. Knowing facts... Uh, there we can be pretty certain that we know, I know your address, mm. I know how many ounces there are in a pound, comforting, but <laughs> most of those things, uh, I think it was Wittgenstein who said, sure, there are things we can know with absolute certainty, they're all just things that don't matter very much. All the things that matter yeah. are the kind of things that Nietzsche's knowledge, knowing, are about, getting at a truth. I'm suddenly remembering a poem that you and I read over coffee a couple of weeks ago, a poem of Stevens. And uh, I'd like you to read this one. It's a poem from 1917. So another one of Stevens' earliest poems. And it's called The Surprises of the Superhuman. You have that right there, don't you? I do. In part, everyone, I'm asking Herr Swenson to read this because this little poem of six lines has got words from four different languages in it. <laughs> The Surprises of the Superhuman The Palais de Justice of Chambermaids tops the horizon with its colonnades. If it were lost in Übermenschlichkeit, perhaps our wretched state would soon come right. For somehow the brave dicta of its kings make more awry our faulty human things. So first... The rhymes in this poem almost make it sound like a, you know, a Dr. Seuss jingle. You know, it's very comic. 
And that's very unusual in Stevens. It surprised me reading it. Right, especially in that middle stanza. Do that one again, if it were. If it were lost in Übermenschlichkeit, perhaps our wretched state would come out soon come right. <laughs> you know, Alexander Pope would be laughing over that one. Hmm. So we, we do need a comment or two here, too. And, and the surprises of the superhuman, certainly Stevens gets closer than anywhere else here, I think, to explicitly acknowledging Nietzsche in his work. But interestingly enough, he doesn't say the superman, which is how people usually translate Nietzsche's title, but rather the superhuman, which could be either an adjective or a noun. And he makes clear, which probably he means, by using in that middle stanza the word Übermenschlichkeit, which is Nietzsche's term for the Übermensch, the overman or superman, whatever one wants to translate it as, but turned into an abstract noun of that quality, uh, superhumanness, tilting us probably in the direction then of reading superhuman that way. Yeah, I'm only surprised that Stevens doesn't do more of this, you know, more sort of overt playing with talking back to, to Nietzsche. So here's our word horizon again, Alan. Yeah. And there again, I suspect that that's a tip of the hat to Nietzsche, that horizon comes up again and again in Nietzsche's works, that he thinks horizon is what gives human beings the self-assuredness to be able to act. If you wipe them away, we become insecure. Um, mm -hmm. We need to know some kind of framework. I think Nietzsche thinks it's valuable to understand that it's a horizon, that it's not the truth, that it is our limited view of the world, but without it, it's hard to take a stance, hard to do. And getting back to nothingness too, maybe this is a good point to correct a common misconception about Nietzsche and maybe about Stevens too, I don't know. In any case, I think a lot of people think of Nietzsche as a nihilist. And that was exactly what Nietzsche was writing against, was trying to figure out if we could stop uh, us modern Westerners from becoming nihilists. Right. And this is important for Stevens for the whole of his career. The idea of poetry as a supreme fiction. You know, like, what does it mean? You know, most, most people are going to think of a fiction as an untruth, but a supreme fiction, like something that we can believe in, even if temporarily. Hmm? In much of Stevens' poetry, you'll, you'll get moments. Um, Helen Bendler, you know, a generation ago, talked about the variable symbol in Stevens. That is, the significance of something changes stanza to stanza. But I, I think even more fundamental than that is, is you'll, you'll get these successions of metaphors, like it's this, or it's that, or it's this. And each of these similes collapses under the weight of the one that follows it. The idea being none of them is adequate, mm -hmm. but it, it's, it's the creation of them, the endless creativity of, of human imagination that he's celebrating this process as we chase this, this thing that we're never actually going to catch. I'm, I'm glad you brought up how we read this, because part of what I think matters again for Nietzsche, the, this ruminating we were talking about, thinking things over carefully. I don't think either of us would say we've gotten to the point where we think we have a real handle on this poem. 
but we got somewhere bouncing it back and forth between the two of us, trying to figure out what sense we could make of it. And that, I think, is is being willing to put that time and energy, and that's what the aphorism is trying to elicit from us, is to get us to take take a an idea, thought seriously, and think it through carefully, take calmly, slowly. Here, a quick reading through, I'm sure that uh, me reading that through did not convey the poem in any way as, oh, I see what's going on here. This is a, a problematic, problematic poem in so many ways. But if you start noticing what conflicts with what, mm-hmm. what seems strange, you start to notice connections that lead somewhere promising. Right. The Palais de Justice of Chambermaids, what's that? Is it an oxymoron? Is it a, a, a dismissal of the, the world of mere civic order? But if we skip to the next line, I think it, instead of explaining it, it becomes maybe even more puzzling. If it were lost in Übermenschlichkeit, in superhumanness, perhaps our wretched state would soon come right. That's odd. It getting, it getting lost is going to let our wretched state come right? <laughs> In our, our wretched state, does that connect with, with chambermaids? I mean, of course, we can answer all these, these, these questions that, that we're, we're posing because we love the poem. We've, we've talked long about it. But I, I think what we're just pointing out is the very structure of this poem requires a kind of active reading. There's no part of it that really sits still. For instance, we were talking about the word brave in the, the final couplet, right? For somehow the brave dicta of its kings make more awry our faulty human things. And you were, you were telling me that the word brave in German has to do with being well-behaved, like, like a child might be well-behaved. Yeah, yeah. Am I remembering this right? Mm-hmm. Right? Brave. But the other, the other issue that we talked about, too, is that it also has the sense that, that so many of us know from Aldous Huxley's title or from... The Tempest, quote from The Tempest, of a brave new world, meaning a beautiful new world. It's funny. I mean, a great majority of American school kids are are made to read that Huxley book, but I've never had a student who talked to me about that book observe the title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and the, the curious thing here, too, is one has to take that brave dicta, probably keeping our sense of what it means open, but notice that these brave dicta make more awry our faulty human things. They don't fix things. They, they make it more awry. That's a line to pause over. So if there is anything positive that might be fixed upon here, it's losing the palais de justice in Übermenschlichkeit, which might lead to our wretched human state coming right. In any case, the brave dicta of kings doesn't seem to head that that way. The brave dicta of kings or the palais de justice. Uh, am I on solid ground? I, I think I am to, to associate that with the French Revolution and the culmination of Enlightenment promises about perfectibility and, and rational order. I, it's hard to say. In any case, our notion of justice, our 
And and I'm assuming that Stevens, like Nietzsche, they both like to use foreign words. But you know Stevens better. You can make this call. With Nietzsche, Nietzsche tends to use foreign words in a polemic, in an argumentative way almost, that uh, if he wants to talk about the usefulness of something, we, we in English, f- philosophers tend to use then the term utility or speak of utilitarianism. And Nietzsche has Latin words like that, uh, utilitarish or whatever, but he only uses them when he wants to critique philosophers who use them. When he's talking about actual usefulness, he uses the German word. So likewise, when you see him using a foreign word in general, you kind of ask, why is he doing that? And here, I think, perhaps, we tend to be impressed by Palais de Justice, but it may be that he is suggesting a kind of false admiration, false esteem that might be better if it got lost in something else. (laughs) I find myself going back over and again to to something that Nabokov wrote, and I'm going to paraphrase it for our purposes. You can't read modernist poetry. You can only reread it. And that's how this, this form works. So, in, in Stevens, when you, you get foreign phrases, as often as not, it's because he delights in the sound of the phrase. He delights in the, in the difference it makes to the music of his poem. But sometimes, too, as in the, the middle stanza, Übermenschlichkeit, uh, it's also a very specific concept, right? So that if you were to translate it, you know, in, in some literal way, you'd miss the, the really important connection to Nietzsche, which is, I think, what this poem is all about. So far as I can remember, this is just about the only place where where Stevens overtly name checks Nietzsche, where he, he yeah. makes more overt his debt to, to Nietzsche. You would know that better than I do, but of the poems that I know, I've, I've not come across anything where it's so direct. I think that's right. But I also want to say Stevens was hardly unique in this regard. Basically, all the poets of the modernist era, you know, we're talking like 1900 to 1940, all of them had engaged Nietzsche in one way or another. doesn't mean that he, he had the same impact on all of them, obviously. But this is one of the defining features of modernist writing. And it's, it's both conceptual and it's formal. And that's part of why I'm excited about the the series that we're doing together here. The way that Nietzsche develops his most powerful visions, this use of the aphorism, right? As a, a sort of non-foundational, not obvious statement of truth. I think one of the pieces that we've talked about language and seduction of language and knowing, but it's probably worth noting too that in this work that we've been primarily focusing on, the genealogy of morality, and this brings us back to the death of God, uh, that what Nietzsche is concerned about is morality in a world after our scientific investigations have largely rendered God ineffective, at least socially, that we still can be religious in our private lives, but it does not help us in our attempts to sort of structure a sane social existence. And maybe just a a quick 
reference to what he's getting to, and it may tie into Stephen's poem as well. He raises a question that I think we might, I'm sure we wouldn't ask without Nietzsche in a way. I think he's the one who pushed us in the direction, this direction. And it is to figure out what, what it is about morality that has gotten lost or weakened with the decline of God, the concept of God in our world because we got to do something about it. So he, he asks himself then about our contemporary morality, whether or not it might in fact be dangerous to us. In aphorism six of this preface to genealogy of morality, he says, we have taken the value of these values, this morality, as given, as a fact, as beyond all calling into question. We have until now not even remotely doubted or wavered in ranking the good as of higher value than the evil, of higher value in the sense of capacity for advancement, usefulness, beneficiality with regard to man in general. What if the opposite were true? Hmm. What if a symptom of regression also lay in the good, likewise a danger, a temptation, a poison? a narcotic through which perhaps the present were living at the expense of the future. Perhaps more comfortably, less dangerously, but also in a reduced style on a lower level. So that precisely morality would be to blame if a highest possible power and splendor of the human type were never attained. So that precisely morality were the danger of dangers. <sighs> This brings up a lot of things that I, that I think it's the concern for language, the need for multiple perspectives, and, and in some ways it even brings us into the present moment, too, that I certainly, you and I, working with students at a university, are well aware how much young people are concerned that the present is living at the expense of the future. Mm. And maybe we don't often think it could have something to do with our understanding of which we take for granted as if we know in the fact sense of the word what the good is and means. But what I find also very interesting here too is his use of something that we tend to think of as non-grammatical, of a highest possible splendor. Yeah. And he wants us to trip there and stumble because what he wants us to think about here is, yeah, we all know that superlatives have to be the highest, not a highest. But here he gets back to Darwin being right but deadly, I suppose, that if we take Darwin's theory seriously, we don't know what humans might achieve in the future. So there isn't a preordained goal. Well, that's a, a really fascinating moment. And I, I just want to add, your translation is the only translation of ancient English that I know of that observes this sort of grammatical trick isn't quite the right word, but this this thing that Nietzsche does here, this this deliberate distortion of usual grammatical rules. Uh, that was a that was a one of those aha moments I had reading your translation the first time. No, it is cru it is crucial, and it it continues throughout his work, like it does throughout. Stephen's work that you can't just say, oh, I know what he means, or you know what he means. You have to take the granular aspect of their, both these authors' writings seriously 
exactly what they said, what they wrote, rather, and not skip pieces of it, not ignore. Yeah. Well, Alan, I, I realize that, that we're sort of running out of time for this this first of our episodes, and there are about half half dozen Stephen's poems I'd love to do. Like I was thinking last night about a, a another early poem called "The Palace Palace of the Babies," and I'm just going to remark the opening line: "The disbeliever walked the moonlit place." The are you going to read it for us? The moonlit. No, because I want to do a different poem instead. Oh. But, but that opening took me right back to the madman aphorism from, I'm going to say the gay science, but a, a quick word, Alan. Nietzsche's literal title for our 21st century audiences might better be rendered as you would suggest, not the gay science, but... Joyful science, or it, yeah. in any case, it's, it is that he was trying to render a, a title that would have been inexplicable to Germans, Gaia Scienza from Old French, in a way they'd understand it. So he, he gives it the name in German then, Die Fröhliche Wissenschaft. Uh, and Fröhliche is the same word that Germans used to say Merry Christmas. So Merry Science or Joyful Science. <laughs> As opposed to grim, that grimness that we might associate with seeing the nothing that is there, that we should be merry about this. It should delight us. And that's the perfect introduction to what I propose to be the, the last Stevens poem we look at this time. So this is a poem from 1922, a couple years later than the others that we've, we've read. And it's maybe the one best known of all of Stevens' poems. It's called The Emperor of Ice Cream. And what you were just saying about this joyfulness, this is a really good example of, of it. Let me just frame it quickly, because the situation here is going to be unfamiliar to most 21st century people. But a century ago, most folks were born in their family home and they died in their family home. You know, it wasn't the, the clinical world of, of hospitals. And this is a poem about a, a home funeral. But I, I'm, as I say all this, I'm kind of giving away the uh, part of the joy of the poem, because none of this is said overtly. And I'll, I'll just say one other thing. After Stevens published his poem, he got a concerned letter from the president of the American Ice Cream Manufacturers Association wanting to know, was Stevens for or against ice cream? <laughs> Stevens thought that was just fantastic. So, the emperor of ice cream. Call the roller of big cigars, the muscular one and bid him whip in kitchen cups concupiscent curds. Let the wenches dawdle in such dress as they are used to wear, and let the boys bring flowers and last month's newspapers. Let be, be finale of seam. The only emperor is the emperor of ice cream. Take from the dresser of deal, lacking the three glass knobs, that sheet on which she embroidered fantails once, and spread it so as to cover her face. If her horny feet protrude, they come to show how cold she is and dumb. Let the lamp affix its beam. The only emperor is the emperor of ice cream. 
I still delight, as many times as I've read this poem, the, the music of, of lines like, and bid him whip in kitchen cups concupiscent curds. So here's a poem about a funeral, but there's no mournfulness. It's like someone has died. Life goes on. He says wenches, you know, grabbing another word out of Shakespeare, as he so often does. You know, tell the girls to come and, you know, whatever they're wearing. Like, come as you are, right? And if the boys are going to bring flowers, they, we don't need some fancy, you know, flower shop wrapping. Just bring them in newspapers, right? Call the roller of big cigars, the muscular one. The roller of big cigars, the guy who whips concupiscent curds, concupiscent curds, right? That's ice cream. So they're saying, call the caterer, have him bring some cigars and ice cream. So there's a level of delight in the language itself. But this is sort of characteristic of, of Stevens. He can look at, at things that everyone knows, but we sort of grow up thinking, death, you know, this hooded figure carrying this side. He's not there. The only emperor is the caterer, right? The emperor of ice cream. So this this playfulness, this this sort of reinvention of our horizons with every single line. I think this actually gets gets to maybe why seduction of language can be a problem. Thinking that someone always causes things, and maybe it is that we too often associate death and misfortune with why me, as if somebody actually singled us out and did this, and what. Stevens managed to do here, I think Nietzsche would be utterly delighted with that, why not me? This is life. I embrace this. This is how it works. Um, it's going to happen. There's nothing personal about it. And that is, that is for Nietzsche, that's the key thing, is, is not being a nihilist, but rather embracing the life that we actually have and know, as opposed to perfect, a lost, an afterlife, something we can't see that compensates us for the failures of this life. Yeah, Stevens' masterpiece in the old medieval sense of that term, the, the poem that announced his arrival as a, as a poetic master, was Sunday Morning. Hmm? And it's one of those, you know, there's this American tradition of Sunday night going to church poems, and, and this is my <laughs> personal favorite in the genre, right? Why should she give her bounty to the dead, muses this woman who's enjoying coffee and oranges in a sunny chair. <laughs> and in her musing, she, she thinks, you know, death is the mother of beauty. What you were just, say, just saying is, is perfect. It's, yes, you know, we're all going to meet this end, but what's going to define us is our response to it. And uh, this poem, too, is sometimes, you know, because of the, the mere topic, people immediately think, oh, he's obsessed with death. Stevens is a nihilist. The same kind of uninformed response that Nietzsche so often meets. But in fact, this is a very life-affirming poem. Yeah. Finding beauty in ordinary things. And in, in a certain sense, on the level of language itself in this poem, it's just bursts with invention and playfulness. And that models for us maybe our best response to the limits of a human life. Well said. <laughs> that might be as good a place as any for us to pause. So next time, we're going to go back about a century from where we've been today. And we're going to be talking about the German polymath Friedrich Schlegel and the English poet 
William Blake. If uh, Blake's Proverbs of Hell stood conventional Christianity on its head, if that's all they did, they would have been forgotten long ago. But I'm interested, we're interested in how Blake's writing so often looks like the epigrams of the 18th century, but in fact, anticipate some of what we were just talking about in Wallace Stevens. They, they need to be played with. They need to be interpreted. And we'll do that work in view of what was happening in, in Friedrich Schlegel's work. And this will hopefully resonate then with what we've tried to do today, which is to look at Nietzsche's aphorisms as not the first to do this perhaps, but as one of the most pronounced attempts to get at knowing things in a complicated way, knowing things that are hard to get at. And the connection between that and what poets do, the connection between that and language that stops us from falling into cliche, language that makes sure that we recognize our horizons, our own limitations in trying to get at something like objectivity about the complex things we really care about. So thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for listening. Oh, this was fun, Alan. It's been a pleasure, as always, working with you, Michael. Bye, everyone. Bye. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening. Oh, I would love to think that we're speaking to the masses. <laughs> we're tired of talking to academics. <laughs>